Get ready, set, mic, go. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Revolution Watch podcast. I'm your host, Kevin, and joining me as always is Stephanie. Hi, guys. Today, I think the podcast is going to be really good because we have a cool and interesting conversation with none other than Michael Friedman, who used to be categorized as the historian at Audemars Piguet, but now he's a head of complication. I think this might be one of the best episodes we've done so far because Michael is such an interesting person to talk to. Uh, we've met him a couple of times now, and each time he's told us, you know, something more about AP's history or his own background. And yeah, it's, it's just so much fun to talk to him. And he also told us, actually, that this is the first time he's been on a podcast ever. So we're very honored to have him with us today. Also, if you've been around SIHH, you'll know that Michael is the one who gives the AP presentation. And so he's very like eloquent and uh, he speaks very well in front of a crowd. So, you know, we, we knew from the get go that there was going to be a, a yeah. good episode. Yeah, yeah. So I think we spend quite a bit of time in the episode just talking about, you know, the, the history of time, the concept of time, what it means to us. And like, I mean, we do touch on AP watches eventually, but I think the conversation is just so not what um what you're used to hearing yeah so, it's, so it's really more the you know some subjects surrounding watches more than the watches itself yeah so so don't miss out on this episode yeah it's really cool should and we just uh, get into it now yeah for sure yeah let's go into it okay all right so joining us today is uh, none other than uh, michael friedman um uh, at AP, who is now head of complications, if I'm Correct. not mistaken. Correct. Yes. Um, so first of all, welcome uh, to, to to the show, and thank you very much for your time. It's a great pleasure to be here with you guys. Yeah. So y you told us that this is the first podcast that you've ever done. I think it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're very happy that. Yeah, I'm uh, very honored. <laughs> no, I to am. have you as the guest. It's a great pleasure to be with Revolution, to be with you guys specifically. Um, I'm 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 happy to be here in Hong Kong. Yeah, and and I think. Uh, also, you're someone who's very interesting to talk to just because you have a wealth of knowledge, not just about AP's history, but also uh, in terms of the watchmaking industry uh, as a whole. Um, so before, last time we saw you, you were kind of categorized as the historian of AP. And now you have shifted to become head of complication. So how did that transition come about? What does your new position uh, entail compared to previously? Okay. So both positions, the previous role as historian and the current role as the head of complications, there's, believe it or not, it sounds quite different, but there's quite a few similarities, at least through the lens of Audemars Piguet. First and foremost, both roles were very interdepartmental. So it meant that I was working with many people internally across the spectrum of the company, as well as clients externally. Both roles had an emphasis on complications. As the historian, one of the main projects we'd been working on for years was the complications book, which was really the deep dive into the history of our complications, technically, aesthetically, historically, through the lens of the watchmakers and the artisans and the craftsmen, really understanding the rarity, the path that we took. Having had the time in the watch industry that I've had, we, on the collector side, always knew how rare Audemars Piguet complications were, but to what extent, we had no clue. And that's what was exciting about that project. So in terms of what's changed on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm now overseeing a new department that is most closely tied to the retail 
side of things, but it's also very closely tied, of course, to product, to marketing, client experience, visits to Libresu, as well as the key component, which ties both positions, which is the relationships with global collectors, existing and potential clients from all over the world. So in terms of the day-to-day responsibilities, the role is to really oversee the entire strategy of complications from what we're producing now, what we're going to be producing in the future, all the way to how the watches are going to be sold and ending up on the wrists of clients around the world. So it involves collaborations and discussions with the watchmakers at Audemars Piguet Renault Papi, at the manufacturer, with the designers, with the product team, as well as with the retail and marketing side. The idea was to take an interdisciplinary approach to really, really take a strategy for complications that had never been done before, from the bench to the wrist. That's what I say all the time internally. Our role at Audemars Piguet is to take the work of the watchmakers, artisans, and technicians, and we're really here just to facilitate what they do to the getting the watch on the wrist of the client. Doing this through the lens of complications allows us to focus on the most important watches we're producing, a lot of the new technologies, uh, and as well as how we're going to communicate about those technologies. And I think that's another key role that connects those two positions, is how to translate not just the technical, not just the historical, not just the aesthetic, but also the experiential side of things. Because I'm a collector. It's not, I'm on both sides of this fence. I'm over 20 years in the industry, but only six years with a brand. And I'm somebody who buys and doesn't sell. So I really have that sense of what people are looking for. Um, the types of questions that clients and collectors ask. What's possible, what's not possible. And I'm constantly studying and learning. I, I, I try to surround myself with people who know more than I do in every respect. That's one thing I love about this complications department. To sit down with someone like Luca Raji, who's our uh, director of development of new mechanisms, or Giulio Papi. These are geniuses. These are people who know infinitely more than I do in their fields. So I'm able to personally be challenged and learn a tremendous amount in the process. And then on the flip side, offer them sort of the more cultural perspective as to how these watchers are being received out in the market, the types of questions people are asking, what people are looking for, what people haven't seen in a long time that they're curious about revisiting. So all of this is being woven into a very concrete long-term strategy that is bringing together many different minds from within the company, and as you know, sometimes minds from outside of the company, like the way we worked with the EPFL for the development of the Supersonere. Audemars Piguet is always looking outside of watchmaking as much as inside of watchmaking. That's why it's a company that embraces culture the way that we do. Right. That's awesome. Now, so, so you were talking about how you, you're constantly you know, learning, um, right? So before you, you came into watches, you, you pretty much studied the philosophy, I guess, of, of time, we can call it? What was it? So my undergraduate work was at uh, Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. And my degree was through the psychology department. And I did concentrations in history and art and film and other multidisciplinary fields. But I started, it was, it was a class that I took in my second year of university where we started to look at broader myths, cultural myths that have cut through the timeline and that remain. And I became specifically interested in time. And it was the discovery that in parts of, well, what in the U.S. we would call the, the Far East, um, had a completely different system of time measurement. It was this recognition that, that Japan had a totally different system of time measurement until the 1880s that 
the, and this understanding that time as we know it is just a metaphor of local astronomy, that you have, all that time is, is our local astronomy. And our watches are therefore, all of our systems of time measurement are therefore just metaphors of that local astronomy. And the way that it can be culturally interpreted can shift over time. New technologies can change it, philosophies, ideas. So it was kind of like taking the idea of relativity from physics, but then realizing that the expression of time itself is also relative. That's been the driving factor in my whole career. So, of course, I landed on objects of time measurement very, very quickly. But it wasn't just watches and clocks. It was also the ancient systems of time measurement, the uh, water clocks, fire clocks, sundials, all the different systems that were used cross-culturally and historically in ancient civilizations to capture the passage of time. Because ancient civilizations weren't telling the time, they were measuring the passage of time. So it was starting to look through cultural, cultural history and eventually art history, but through the lens of what we would call horology. But horology in the truest sense, the study and science of time measurement. I began working specifically with watches and clocks. My first position was in 1996 at the Willard House and Clock Museum. And this was fascinating because, I've, as mentioned, the, it's always, to me, the interest has been the connections to broader culture. And the Willard House and Clock Museum was a great place for me to get started because the Willard family, multi-generational family of American clockmakers, they were producing clocks for U.S. presidents and dignitaries. Their clocks are all over the White House, Statutory Hall, their work is there. Um, incredible works at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So the collection of Willard House and Clock Museum not only had these great clocks as well as some watches, but it had all the letters and correspondence, all of that cultural history, letters from Tom Thomas Jefferson to the clockmakers and back again. So that's that really, really set the stage for me was that watches and clocks aren't independent of culture. Systems of time measurement aren't independent of culture. They're central to culture. And as I started to discover more and learn more, I realized that every single discipline in every single field had a lot to teach me. So if I would speak to the historian about time measurement, I would learn some lessons. Different from that of the physicist. Different from that of the astrobiologist. Different, once again, uh, from the anthropologist. Different, again, from an artisan, an art historian. Everyone had their own perspective on what time measurement is and what objects of time measurement represent. I realize that this is the most interdisciplinary field in existence and perhaps the most cultural, aesthetic, and technical important field in existence. The entire history of human civilization is anchored to time measurement. That was a major realization. And I always loved interdisciplinary studies. I liked where things connect. Some of us are dividers by nature. Some of us are connectors by nature. For me, I really believe every day of our lives, are we building the bridge or are we deconstructing the bridge? Are we building the boat to sail together or are we taking it apart and we're going to sink? I'm a builder. I'm a connector. And I like being with, with minds that are similar to where I can learn, adapt, and hear those perspectives. And it continues to this day. I have friends, colleagues, both within Audemars Piguet but also outside of Audemars Piguet in their own fields where I pick their brains about their experiences of time and what time means to them. Sometimes it's a chef. Maybe it's a filmmaker. Maybe it's a musician. It could be anyone from these fields. Their own experiences of time, the passage of time, and the representation of time is fascinating to hear and to learn from. Watches 
mechanical watches specifically are the ultimate representation of that through my mind because these are objects of permanence in this era of obsolescence. These are really among the only objects being created today that are consciously designed to outlive us. So by nature, the mechanical watch is also an expression of this theory of time. If you go to the greatest museums in the world, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Rijksmuseum, the Hermitage, the British Museum, you're going to see great clocks and watches, sometimes in, in independent exhibitions, and other times right alongside great works of art. So it's not just, uh, I, I bet I'm one of many people who have stumbled upon these types of, of ideas and discoveries. Um, and I think what my contribution, what I try to do, is to connect it to culture today and to see where we're heading. So I like to remind people even of our latest technological developments, like, for example, at CERN with the Hadron Collider. Even a technology like this, you still need the time standard. You still need the atomic clock. Um, when you look at modern satellite systems, when you look at our, our missions to send, uh, to send um, technology out into space, to Mars, and we're now even looking about going beyond, that notion of time remains so significant to the process. We're all still John Harrison, in a way, solving longitude. You know, as we move deeper, as we move further, we need to make sure our systems of time measurement are aligned with where we're heading scientifically, culturally, philosophically. Those cross-sections is where I live and where I really love to be. Wow. And, and so in, in all the people that you question about uh, time, you know, you, you were mentioning maybe the, the a cook or mm. uh, some of those other people. What are some answers that you get from them? Like their relationship to time? Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, it, it, it goes back to that, to that uh, not, not the physics, not the Einsteinian notion of relativity, but the experiential notion of relativity. When you speak to, uh, for example, to, uh, to a chef about what does, what does the eve, how do they experience the evening? How do they experience the preparation? How do they experience the service? But also not just in the moment of, their, of the short time frame, but also the recipes themselves, the techniques themselves. This is so critical to everyone, whether it's conscious or not, these different systems of time measurement. So with the chef, with everybody, there's, there's different systems of time measurement and perception that all come together in the moment. So looking at it through the lens of someone like, um, I had a conver great conversation with, uh, with Chef Nakazawa. We did, we've done many events with him. I'm a big fan of his work. And he, he hear him express the traditions as well as the breaking from the traditions, the time that goes into the craft, the care, understanding the history, but trying to take it to a new place, as well as the experience of time when you're consuming, when you're thinking, when you're reflecting back on it. You know, a meal is just a meal in some respects. But food is fascinating because some of our strongest memories are tied to food. I can ask you what you had for dinner last week, and you're not going to remember what you ate for last Tuesday. But if I ask you what your favorite meal from your grandmother was growing up, you're going to have a very distinct memory, and you're going to immediately travel back in time to that moment. This is referred to as, it's almost like mental time travel. Our, our, our neurons... Our brain doesn't look at the timeline the same way as our conscious mind does. This is where time and memory becomes a very fascinating subject, which many people in different fields are studying. So 
our brains really don't look at it the same way. This is why a memory from 20, 25 years ago could be crystal clear versus something from a week ago. For a long time, linguists thought this was a function of storytelling. You've told yourself the story over and over, therefore you think the memory is fresh, but you're really recreating the memory. Neurologists are coming along saying, hey, that might not be the case. There might actually be a neurological reaction going, going on here where those memories are, as far as your brain is concerned, more immediate than something that just happened and just occurred. These types of questions are super interesting to me, whether it's food or, again, speaking with a filmmaker. Um, I, I, I'm fortunate enough to know some, some interesting people that I can learn from. I, uh, over the years, I became close with a photographer uh, named Lena Herzog. Lena's a brilliant photographer. We worked with her uh, on the Strandbees project with the artist Theo Janssen several years ago. Lena's a very accomplished photographer, brilliant mind, one of my close friends and advisors in many respects. She also happens to be the wife of Werner Herzog, the great filmmaker. So spending time with the two of them, even for a meal, and hearing their perspectives about time through the perspective of a, of a photographer, who, by the way, uses 19th century techniques to process her work, as well as through her husband, who produces some of the most fascinating documentaries imaginable, to hear them express how they experience time with their subjects, with themselves, with their process, with their work. All of this becomes a feedback loop for myself. So now I'm not only looking at things through my own perspective, but I'm able to put on the glasses of somebody else and, and see the world through maybe just a, a glimpse of seeing the world through their eyes and through their lenses. I think this is why we as individuals are so attracted to art and to music. It gives us the ability to get outside of ourselves a little bit and to see the world in a different way. For me, it tends to get filtered through the lens of experience of time and time theory. Wow, that's great. So you're constantly just always, I guess, give, getting new perspective on, on what time is or yes. what you thought time is. Absolutely. Time I mean, you know, we're a little outside of, of, of watchmaking right now. Yeah. But all of this is still part of the discussion. And, and this is what gives us the ability to also connect and communicate effectively. You know, when you're, when you're embracing culture in, in, in such a way... When you find a theme that can connect things, it allows us to communicate a little more deeply and a little more intimately with people. Um, for example, when I travel around the world uh, for, with Audemars Piguet, because I've studied systems of time historically, I'm able to discuss with someone what mechanical and horological objects were being created during the Islamic Golden Age what was created in ancient China in the 11th century, how the mechanical clock of today is an evolution of the water clock of this region. All these different cultural notions and histories, which are interdisciplinary in their own right, it gives us the ability to connect and to discuss and to share and to learn. So then you're just not talking about a so-called luxury object or a luxury good. Now we're talking about an object of culture. Because make no mistake, history will not look at a watch just as a watch. When we're looking at a 16th century complicated watch at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, we're looking at it as a work of art and a work of technology and a work of design and a work of expression that seems impossible that they were able to produce such an object. It's crazy, by the way, that complications predate accuracy. I love that. In the 16th century, you had watches that had phases of the moon and alarm mechanisms. But of course, you needed your sundial to set it constantly throughout the day. It was terrible at keeping time, um, but still incredible uh, innovations nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. 
So um, pulling the conversation back into watchmaking. Yes. And um, so congratulations again on the the book on complicated what wristwatches. Well, that's a congrats to really the entire, the entire heritage team. team. Wow. Yeah. Everyone put in so much time and effort. Uh, mm. This was a... It was a many, many years yeah. in the work. Yeah. Yes. It was so f five years, is it? Just about five years, five years. yes. Yeah, yeah. So was that something that you guys internally wanted to do because you felt that, like you said before, that there was a lack of research done on this topic? Or did clients come forward to ask all sorts of questions that made you guys decide maybe it's time to do it now? Well, it was really a matter of why should we keep this information to ourselves? Let's, it's part of Audemars Piguet's culture is, is transparency. We, as a family-run business, as an independent company, we, we want to pull the curtains back. We want people to see and experience everything that, not just that we're doing today, but what our watchmakers of the past have done. But we couldn't just show the archives. We had to interpret and study them. Hence why it was so much research, so much required. It was also a matter of, of looking at theories and proving them through first-generation research. Many of us come with an academic background, and we wanted to take that approach. Even though we're a brand, even though we're a company, we wanted this to be a scholarly academic project. So, for example, I had long been theorizing early in my career that the minute-repeating wristwatch was an evolution of the woman's pendant watch. It made sense when you looked at the calibers, but I wasn't able to prove that with first-generation documents. At Audemars Piguet, through the lens of Audemars Piguet, but through the all first-generation documents, photographs, archives, notes from the watchmakers, illustrations, and the actual product, we are now able to prove without question that the first minute-repeating wristwatches for men were directly derived from the minute-repeating pendant watch for women. This is kind of significant. Audemars Piguet made 35-minute repeaters from 1892, wristwatches, from 1892 through the 1970s. Six of those 35 were actually recased pendant watch movements. So right there we see that evidence, we see that proof. We even have a photograph of a watch in the Complications book that shows a repeater watch but the pendant case is right behind it. So you really get that sense of how immediate that evolution was. That's one of many, many types of stories, histories, I should say, that we were able to validate through the first-generation documents. Then it was, of course, getting to understand the watches we produced themselves. As you go through the book, you're going to see we were able to count manually that we produced those 35 repeaters I mentioned, 307 chronograph wrist watches, and 208 moon phase watches, calendar watches. Not all of them had phases of the moon. Some of them had no moon, but 208 calendar watches. But then studying the archives, we were able to see that the watchmakers recorded what size they were, what year they were made, what market they sold to, case materials, so many details that we were able to chart. And it's been known that brands like Audemars Piguet and Patek Philippe would produce watches in batches, and then the movements would sometimes be cased much later. I'd always wondered why, why that was. Were they just sitting around? But I now, again, we've been able to prove through the, through the research that the whole manufacturer, which, we're, again, we're talking about a handful of watchmakers back then, would have to all come together and focus on the production of movements. So it would be like, okay, for the next few years, we're going to be producing chronograph movements. So they would produce these movements with the knowledge that they wouldn't all be immediately cased. 
So then they would move on to calendar watches after that era. So when you look at the dates of production, you're going to see that they're batched. The repeaters are made in one era, the chronographs are done in an era, and the calendar, not, again, there's outliers and things that fall off the chart, but you're able to almost see this level of organization. So now we start to see the way that, that the watches were even created. But it goes even a, a layer deeper, which is when you start to see the handwritten notes. As you guys are well aware, there was always competition in the world of watches. Just like today, smaller, thinner, more. This is no, nothing new. The brands were in competition in a very friendly way even back then producing these types of objects. And one of those pursuits for Audemars Piguet was miniature minute repeaters, as I was touching upon earlier. And we have a handwritten note of the gentleman who produced the seven-line minute repeater, the smallest minute repeater ever produced. And I'm giving a paraphrase, but he basically says in his handwritten note, which we've reproduced in the book, that his eyes are ruined and he's never going to do this again. <laughs> it was this incredibly subjective moment of yeah. frustration after this guy accomplished something unimaginable today. Mm. Unimaginable. When I speak to watchmakers today, what would it take you to produce a seven-line minute repeater? You know, the first hand, whoa, you know, they're just in disbelief <laughs> yeah. at, at such a process. The other types of histories that come out which really start to illustrate the company are things like the 1889 Paris Exposition. Many different companies participated in the 1889 Paris Expo. But for Audemars Piguet, it was majorly significant. So just for those who, who, who aren't as much of a history nerd, the 1889 Paris Expo, for me, is the day the world got small. This was when the Eiffel Tower debuted. About 40 million people attended during the year. And when you look at who attended, it's crazy. Vincent van Gogh, Degas, Monk, Claude Debussy, like uh, Nikola Tesla, Thomas Edison. It's like it's like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Like the greatest minds of art and creativity are all there in one place, uh, essentially at the same time. Jules Audemars and Edward Piguet went. They went with miniature minute repeating pendant watches again, which became eventually the wrist watches, and they went with the grand complication watches for men, as well as an ultra complicated watch, which is called the Universal, which is part of the Audemars Piguet Museum. It was at this time that Audemars Piguet created their distrib their global distribution network. So the vision of Jules and Edward to go beyond Le Brousseau themselves, to, to not have to funnel it all through Geneva became a realization in 1889 at that Paris Expo. And since that time, we've been this company that has embraced culture, that has had this constant dialogue with our markets and this loop that goes back from Le Brasseau to the world and back again. So yeah, on the one hand, Le Brasseau is this remote region, harsh geography, difficult to get to. I moved from New York to Le Brasseau. I make that drive every day <laughs> from New York up there. It's a little different from taking the four tra train from Brooklyn yeah. into Manhattan. So on the one hand, it's this, but on the other hand, this was this incredible sociocultural matrix of complexity that was connected to much bigger affairs even long before Audemars Piguet. You heard me mention it earlier, we were discussing, but think of the enameled automatons from the 1790s. These were complex minute repeater automaton mechanisms made in the Valley des Joux, cased and enameled in Geneva, sometimes shipped directly to Asia, other times through UK, hallmarked, ending up on the uh, ending up in the collections of, of, of royalty and dignitaries here in Asia. In the 1790s. Like, you know, this is what's crazy. And this is what is so amazing about horology. It is this cross-section of the whole scope of 
world affairs. And this is what is so amazing to me about it. And I think this is in some ways subconsciously what drives interest in watches today. I think that you, the watch is always more than, more than it meets the eye in that sense. Um, I'm not the only one who says it. Many people do. We talk about how we look at our watch 60, 70, 80 times a day, but only register the time yeah. half the amount. <laughs> yeah. We talk about the stories that are tied to watches. We talk about what they represent. And it's clear. When you look at the history of science and technology and the history of art, objects of time measurement have that special place because they've always been decorated. They've always been treated with reverence because of what they represent cross-culturally and historically. And that's where we're at today with watchmaking. This is, doesn't have to be a, a high-end, complicated Audemars Piguet. I'm talking about design as much as decoration. We're still interested in having these works of creativity and these works of design and these works of technology that are on our wrist. I mean, I'm looking at you right now. You have... You have a, is that a I'm wearing two watches. You're wearing uh, two watches. You have, a, a, you have a Rolex on one hand, and you have a uh, and you have your Apple Watch uh, Apple on the watch. other hand. Yeah. So you you know you're it's it's a fascinating representation, and this is a moment in time. You know, you right now, if we take this photograph, okay? This is a specific era of wearing the digital and the analog at the same time, because the digital device is a transitional technology. It's going to evolve into something else. You're going to be able to receive that data in other ways in the future. The patents are clear. But the other object on your wrist is part of a different order. It's part of a different evolutionary branch. They have some origin points together, but um, you're wearing time on both wrists. But where those objects came from and where those objects are going are completely different trajectories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Kevin gets asked all the time why he wears two watches. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the thing is, my answer is always that the, the Apple Watch is considered as a miniature computer that helps me deal with my day. Exactly. You know, it's like, uh, I guess, with, uh, I don't know, uh, what was it? The calendar emails, appointments, emails, yeah. Um, and yeah, health yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. health yeah. too. Weather forecast, you know yeah. that kind of stuff. But uh, I mean, it, you, uh, you know, the, the the Apple Watch, like it, it, it has changed, I guess, the industry big time. But you know, it also, like, wh when you look at the design team who's designed the the, the watches, they all watch nerds themselves. So Absolutely, it's, 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 it's always interesting when you see that. You know, I, like you said, the the beginnings comes from. So the mechanical object <laughs> that, yeah. that leads to this, but yeah. I think you also mentioned earlier um, in the presentation this very interesting point: how um, having published the book and having all this, having analyzed all the data that you have and realizing how rare uh, AP watches actually are, it helps the investment value as well for the pieces. Yeah. Like, so that's not the intention, but it's the results. Yeah. And. Another big discovery which which came through the study was that everything before 1951 was created as a unique watch at Audemars Piguet. We didn't introduce reference numbers or model numbers until 1951. And so you can look at two jump hour watches from the 20s, and they can look very similar, but they're not identical because the case maker, dial maker had no set specifications. Um, our, our friends at, at elsewhere in the Valley de Joux by that period already were beginning with their reference numbers and producing watches and duplicates. We didn't do that until until 1951. Um, so in that respect, that was a 
that was a very, very uh, interesting discovery as well. And that type of discovery, along with the rarity of the complications, as well as the diversity of designs, and as well as understanding the role of the retailers in that design. When I say the retailers, I'm referring to the agents and the markets for whom we were producing for. So when you look at those 307 chronographs, for example... I don't have to tell you one from 1936 was made for Italy. You're going to look at the watch and you're going if I said which one's Germany, which one was Italy and which one was the US market. You're going to know. You're going to see the design and you're going to say, "Wow, that watch was looks like 1930s Italian aesthetics." And it was. You're going to see one where uh, I can show you a chronograph with an enamel dial where it says miles instead of tachometer with a, be- a beautiful steel chronograph with an enamel dial. You're going to know US market. You're going to be able to identify where the market these watches were produced simply through their aesthetics. That's incredible to me. Again, it's this window into a bigger universe, into a bigger world. The APs from the 1920s that were made for the New York market, because, you know, the economy boomed in the U.S. in the 1920s, specifically the clients we had in New York, you can see these watches look so much like the architecture and aesthetics of that era. They were being produced for some of the people who were really at the forefront of technology in their era, as well as on the economic side because of their price points. So if you see a Cartier minute, if you see a minute repeater from the 20s with Cartier on the dial, it's an Audemars Piguet movement inside. The history is fascinating. Our agent was called the Metric Watch Company. And so they were working in between us and in and Cartier. Um, what's fascinating is we discovered that uh, the, the Great Depression hit when we had delivered a batch of watches, but before we were paid for them. So there are some <laughs> complications that were produced at the end of the 20s that Audemars Piguet uh, was never actually paid for. Some of those watches have ended up back in the museum. So it's quite, quite fascinating. But that's the level of granular history we've been able to get to. And again, why is that? The company never left the hands of the founding families. The preservation of the archives, the commitment to keeping the stories of the watchmakers of the past alive. This is what fuels us today. This is what gives us so much energy and inspiration today. It's really, it becomes much more empowering to move forward when you have a clear vision of all the great work that's been done in the past. And it's, it's, Nothing shy of incredible to spend time with those watchmakers of the past. It's our own little time machine. And even though I'm not working in the museum now, I still like to spend time and go back there when I have a moment just to look through those archives and look through those photographs, not to directly recreate something today, you know, not in that respect, but just to see the journey and the pathway of these artisans and watchmakers of the past and then to share some of those stories with the watchmakers of today i love that i love showing showing a watchmaker surprising a watchmaker today by showing an accomplishment of somebody who preceded them and then having a discussion of how different things are today um the journey that we've taken keep in mind the industry has changed massively in our lifetimes before 1980 there were only two companies producing perpetual calendars and series just Audemars Piguet and Patek. There were a couple one-offs here and there, but I'm talking about watches in series, in larger numbers. By 1988, the perpetual calendar is ubiquitous amongst all companies. What changed? It's CAD and CNC, computer-assisted design, computer numerical control. These tools of technology opened up the watch worlds in massive ways. 
And we're still in that era. We're still in that moment of discovery and of liberation in many respects. This is why we're in such an exciting point of watches today. It's much where much it's much where art was in my mind in the 1880s and 90s with impressionism. You know, if you look at the history of art, what changed everything was the invention of the camera. Art was primarily representative up until the 1850s. Now all of a sudden, the camera's invented, and you have this new technology that can capture reality in a way that a painter can't. So what happens in the following decades? The artists are liberated, they're now free. They can now leave realism behind and start exploring. And this is where impressionism rises from. It rises in the wake of the invention of photography. I make the parallel to the quartz era with watches coupled with CAD and CNC. You had watches being produced. Of course, you have different styles with each decade. You know, again, watches are part of culture, so you have watches that depict the era. But then 1969, the quartz watch is invented. It devastates much of the industry. Other aspects of the industry, like at Audemars Piguet, Patek, and others, refocus on complications, and the companies grow during this era. They grow, it's clear. 1970 to 1985 was a big growth period for a couple of the brands, and that's directly connected to certain designs, like the Royal Oak for Audemars Piguet and the Nautilus for Patek, but more so, it was the complications. People think the Royal Oak saved us from the quartz crisis. It was the 2120 QP, it was the perpetual calendar. That's the watch that really propelled us through the quartz crisis, without a doubt. And then the following decade, CAD and CNC come. That's the, what the f camera did to art. This is the era we're in now. This is where the concept evolves out of. And out of the concept, this is where we see the great, great watches from our friends at Richard Mille and at MBNF and at Erwerk and at Grubel Force. This is all of this derives and evolves in an era. These watch, none of those watches could have been created before the era of computers and advanced technologies. That's really incredible to me because we, can, we can't take ourselves out of our own timeline. We live within it, and we have to keep that balance going as much as possible. But I love the era of watchmaking we're in now with many of these brands because we're maintaining the, those traditions of the past in some respects, in many respects, at AP certainly, but we're also liberated in creating incredible designs that were, weren't able to be conceptualized. The RD2 is a good example, the, the uh, new ultra-thin perpetual calendar automatic we've just released. I've had many conversations with Giulio Papi and Luca Raggi at Audemars Piguet about this watch, and Giulio is very clear. He says that it could have taken lifetimes to solve the math and the geometry on paper, that he knew where to go, but he needed the computer to assist him with those calculations, because if it was on paper, this is why it's never happened before. You know, we perpetual calendars have existed for a couple hundred years, but the, to get that thin, to bring it down to the, to, the, to the individual level that we've done was so complex in regard to the differentials and to the geometry, to the counts, to the math, that the computer was necessary to realize that vision. Of course, at Audemars Piguet, we're still hand-finishing the mechanism and the case. All those traditional craft are still the driving force of the watch, yet the computer was a massive tool, an instrumental tool in getting there. And this is where we in the world of watches have to start paying more credit and respect not just to the watchmakers, which is massive, and the artisans, which is huge, and the soul and spirit, but we also need to pay respect to the technicians and the computer engineers. They're a big part of the watch industry today. 
we at AP have been talking about this since we created the first automatic tourbillon in 1986, which, which for us was the first complicated watch that was conceptualized and created thanks to those advanced technologies. So when you come to Audemars Piguet, yes, you see the, all of the great handwork that we preserve, the skeletonization, the open working, the grand comp workshops, the restoration workshops, all of this. But we're also not shy to show the reality of the computer and, and of the industrial side of things, which helps these visions become real. It's very important for people to understand the complexities of the watch industry. Jumping back to our earlier discussion, when I was at Willard House and Clock Museum, I was one of my first mentors and teachers is a gentleman named Robert Cheney. He's one of the great experts in American clocks. And Robert at the time was breaking the myth of the American clockmaker. The myth used to be that the clockmaker, Simon Willard, would sit there in his workshop, making the clock part by part, component by component, finishing the work, putting it into a case, and then selling it. What Robert discovered was... No, the movements were being shipped from the United Kingdom. They were arriving. Some work was done in addition to that. Some finishing work was done. The case designs were all domestic, but the mechanisms were primarily from the United Kingdom. He was able to prove and demonstrate this academically. Again, first-generation documents and research. So this was my one of my first big teachers. That's the path that I took. And that's, that's why I like to ask these questions today. Never take things for granted and always yes. ask questions. Yeah, get that yeah. bigger picture because yeah. it only, it, it, it's, 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 not about, it's not about right or wrong, although that's su su super important. It's ultimately about p paying respect to the process and the people and the creativity and the ingenuity that got us there. I love to be blown away. I love that. And things like that blow my mind. Like international uh, international collaboration for the creation of objects like that's really really fascinating to me and this is why i love so much today the music world the art world the world of film all these different forms of expression it's about bringing different minds together different creative different experience to express something that would have been impossible it's intercognition right i'm i'm driving on a journey and i'm alone i can't get from a to b without without my GPS, maybe maybe my phone died and I have no maps. But if the three of us are in the car together, we're gonna be able to figure it out. We're gonna be able to solve it. Each of us are gonna come together. That's that's intercognition, and that's at the source, not just of watchmaking, but of, of any great creative yeah, expression. I think so. And that's where watches, boom, yeah. connect back to yeah. culture again. Kind of like when you're watching a Marvel movie and the end credits roll, and you realize how many people are involved in every single yes. bit of it. There's like different units for, yeah, like an entire unit have, they, they have like multiple directors and different cast stuntsmen. So many things go into making one great movie. So I think that's exactly. the same for watches, like so many things go into making one great watch. Exactly. You tend to know the brand. You tend to have a famous watchmaker who you have or, or, or can recognize the name. But underneath that, there's so much more talent. Um, video games is another one where, you know, you until video games started to show credits, I had no idea how 
many different talents were required to bring something like that to fruition. Now, of course, it's obvious, duh, you know? But as you say with the movies, it's the same. And it's fascinating because these are people who devoted their lives to those aspects, whether it's a special effect, whether it's operating a camera, whether it's being the best person to capture the sound, whatever that is, whether it's production, post-production, pre-production, in any field, in any format, it's ultimately a human being behind that doing that work. And it's really cool to then, you know, once you're, once you're sensitive to those topics, then you start asking people different questions and then you start diving a little deeper. What are you about? You know, what drives you? What's your passion? How did you end up where you have ended up? Why, you know, that's, that's fun. That's exciting. That level of discovery. No, it's the same because I was just jumping back. I'm going to jump back because when I was watching Game of Thrones, there was a, a short documentary that they published after and, and they had just one guy and his title was Head of Snow. His only <laughs> job was to come up with the formula to create the snow, the fake snow, and put it in all the places so that it looks realistic on camera. So, you know, and then he was like very, you know, almost anal about it, so making sure that it gets to the right place. He's like, you, you can't put it there. It's not going to show on camera. The camera is going to turn this angle to the left. There has to be snow there. So he moved it. And they had just one guy who's the head of snow. I wow. just found it amazing. So yeah, did, did, you just realized. Speaking of, speaking of GOT, do we ever know who, the coffee cup situation? Did nope. that, did no, that uh, ever get solved? I, I don't think that was ever uh, solved. <laughs> no. just make fun of it. And how about just the whole last season? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't want to spoil it. But yeah, the, the whole season, like, you know, I spent, what, six, seven years just watching the thing. And then you have the last season. I was like, ah, oh, damn it. Why did I put, you know, invest so much time in there? And uh, I mean, I was disappointed from, from start to finish. So in the end, I was like, I, st I still had to go through it just of because course, I had to go course. through the, the end of the story. And there were, we, again, was, we won't uh, spoil, but there were some there were some good aspects, but for sure. But that's always tough, isn't it? The last act, you know, yeah. the last act. You're watching a movie, Act One and Two are killing it, and then boom, Act Three can sometimes be a little yeah. tough. But yeah, I had, my expectations were way too high for the last season. <laughs> I, I think everyone's expectations everyone's were really, yeah. really high. Yeah. I, think, I think that was the problem. Yes. Those expectations <laughs> were too high. And you know what we never saw? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we ever saw an object of time measurement in Game of Thrones. Um, I lost myself a little bit when watching the show, but I was surprised we never no. saw like a sundial, a nocturnal, yeah, no. a water clock. Well, the thing is also that the, the way they use time is, is really almost kind of unrealistic because the way they travel between places is way too quick. Exactly. So, <laughs> I think exactly. they don't want to show us that, uh, yeah, no, yeah, they're going to catch us on this. Yeah, one, sometimes it takes months to get to the other uh, area. Other times it seems to take a couple days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just jump from places. Yeah. Apparently like they terrible. needed a head of time. Welcome to the Game of Thrones yeah. podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah. What you were mentioning before um, with the book and uh, all, all that sort of the history ties in with you know the the museum the new museum that you guys are opening right yeah and so obviously how uh, do, do you think now is a good time to showcase the history of the brand in that aspect with you know the the book uh, the new museum and mm. all that stuff yeah the museum project has been wow i i am i feel so lucky to have joined odomar piguet right when this was getting started First of all, not just the talent internally, our museum director, Sebastian Vivas, is a great curator, and, and we work very, very well together. He's done an amazing job internally overseeing this project, but equally so, getting to know Bjarke Ingels from Big Group and working directly with him has been 
such a great joy and pleasure and learning experience for me. I mentioned earlier about learning from people and, and diving into the minds of others. Bjarke and I are the same age, and we're both, I think he's, I think he's this exact same age. I think he's also 44 years old. And he's really, he's one of the great living architects. And when we did this, when the, when the submissions came back for the project, it was unanimous, blind and unanimous. Everyone fell on the same design. And this is before Big totally, totally blew up. I mean, they were already doing great work. They were already well known. But now it's a whole nother level. So the construction of the museum is just incredible. You've seen the images. It's done now, by the way. The external is done. We're now renovating the existing museum, which is the original manufacturer. We're bringing it back to its aesthetics of the original time period. Respectfully, more, not, not as a purist, but more symbolically. So you're going to have the old space and then you're going to have this highly contemporary space. And Bjarke was sensitive to the importance of the environment to Audemars Piguet and to watchmaking as well. So the entire spiral is glass. And so you always have used the Valley des Jeux because that's something that when you visit not just us, but the other great manufacturers, the importance of light to watchmaking is significant. So we wanted to emerge people not just into the world of Audemars Piguet, but into the world of the Valley des Jeux, into the actual physical environment. And the new museum does that. My worry with the new museum, if people are going to be in there forever, they're not going to leave, not only of the watches that are on exhibition, but just the environment and the geography. We worked very hard that we to create an experience that is primarily analog. You're not going to see many screens in the new museum. You're not going to be isolated with a headphone tour. Just like us at Audemars Piguet, it's going to be engaging. It's going to be interactive, intercognition once again. Um, you're going to, it's going to be primarily guided. You're not going to see thousands of watches. You're going to see a selection of watches that tell specific narratives about the history of the region, the development of complications, as well as the cultural context in which these watches were produced. It's not enough to just look at a watch from the 20s or from the 40s or from the 50s. You need to understand the context in which it was produced, and that's going to be an essential part. We love the existing horological museums. That's where I come from. My first real big job after uh, Willard House and Clock Museum was being curator of the National Watch and Clock Museum. And as curator, I worked on exhibitions from ancient uh, obelisks all the way to global positioning and everything in between. And many of those exhibitions are still there at, down in Columbia, Pennsylvania at the National Watch and Clock Museum. So we were sensitive to really want to bring people through a journey that's that where Audemars Piguet is the main character, but not the only character in town. And that's uh, our story for sure. But our story isn't just our story. Our story is that of the Valley des Jeux. And as mentioned with the 1889 Paris Expo, it goes well beyond borders, uh, significantly beyond borders. That type of transparency is significant for us. In the Complications book, which will also be reflected in the museum, we're clear when, um, when the movement blank, who provided it, we're clear. Is it Valjoux for this watch? Is it Lecoultre for this watch? We're transparent. We think it's super important for people to understand the history of watchmaking and the role that the industrial arm had to the finishers. Because initially, Audemars Piguet, Patek, Vacheron, we were finishers. That was the huge key element, the repasseur. 
the finisher, and as well as the one who focused on the complications, the cadrator, all the work underneath the dial. So this was so much part of the company history and story. We wanted that too to become part of the narrative within the museum. It's going to be a great journey in terms of the story of Audemars Piguet, the immersion in the Valley des Jeux, um, and the hope is that it really becomes a cultural destination. We're also doing a hotel. It's been also done by Bjarke Ingels and Big Group. Um, there is Astroval, which is not just ours, but it's a beautiful uh, telescope and observatory uh, nearby in the Valley des Jeux. Some fascinating restaurants. We we want people to be able to visit the region and explore not just watchmaking, but the context in which watchmaking evolved. Metallurgy is a big part of it. You know, you remember the regions of watchmaking occur because you had metallurgy prior. Whether you're looking in Augsburg, Germany, whether you're looking in the Valley des Jeux, uh, you need you need metallurgy. You need to be able to extract the raw materials to be able to produce the work. And part of the reason why watchmaking excelled so much in the Valley des Jeux, you guys know this well, but outside of the watch world, many people think watches were born in Switzerland. I say, no, watches were perfected in Switzerland. They had a long history before they ended up in Switzerland. But it was the history of metallurgy in the region. You had hundreds of years of people mastering forges and mastering metals. So when watchmaking finally arrives in the valley, mid-18th century, it takes off. You had, of course, you had the expertise of, of the French who were escaping the religious persecution and ending up. But then you had the locals who just knew how to work the materials. And that's so big part of the history. So again, we're talking about the history of watches, but we're also looking at, at the history of rural life, the extraction of metals, working with raw materials, finding sources of income during very, very long winters, how to then make that income into a reality. These are stories of people, series, stories of human beings. That's when we're at our best, is when we're sharing those. You're also trying to bring young people to museums who maybe don't step into them anymore at the same time? Yeah, I mean, look, I spend a lot of time with people a lot younger than, than me. Um, they keep me young as well. Um, we, I, I think more, peop more young people are far more engaged than we give credit for. Um, that's my honest belief. I, I, um, maybe I'm being a little too optimistic on this front, but I really don't think so. This is... It's a transitional time right now, but we are in the point now of, as we get deeper, deeper into the digital age, the importance of the IRL, the in real life, is getting more and more magnified, of which, by the way, the interest in mechanical watches is a huge part of. You know, it's a huge part of, you turn your iPhone on, you don't know how it works. You really don't know. You have a basic idea, but you don't really know. Mechanical watch is understandable. The self-contained universe, a self-contained object, which is independent of anything else and not reliant on anything else other than the watchmaker and the user. That's a very interesting notion today. So going back to that point, I think that emerging in, in, in real life activities is going to very, very much return in a big way. When you look, for example, at live music, you know, bands and, and aren't generating the revenue through sales anymore. They're doing it through touring, right? That's it's people are streaming their music now, not buying it. So when you look at the behavior of people going to shows, going to concerts, going to play, try getting a ticket for a Broadway play. 
It's oh, not it's easy. So it's hard. hard. We we did. It's yeah. also very expensive. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. What did you go see? Um, uh, what was the one? Um, Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton. Oh yeah. yeah. Come on. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, well, it's just because you know you travel to New York, you have to you know choose between a bunch of them. You go, okay, we will have one night. We'll go see one show. Uh, we'll, we'll go see Hamilton. Also spend yeah. a lot yeah. of money. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there's some secrets there. You know, there's yeah. the half price tickets, <laughs> yeah, the last yeah. minute. No. The I lucky know. draws. The lucky stuff, draws. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, in terms of museums, you visit the great museums on a Saturday. Oh yeah, they're busy still. There's still a lot of activity there, and they're getting better at giving portals online, encouraging groups, kids, all of this. And then museums are increasingly relying on companies for sponsorship for a couple reasons. In most countries, the governments are not financing arts like they used to. Not everywhere, but in many. So that's number one. And then number two, it's a way for companies to participate in a cultural activity in a non-commercial, non-transactional way. So then when you have companies' weights behind these exhibitions and museums, you end up with a whole other level of awareness and participation that's taking place. We do quite a bit with, with uh, institutions and museums at Odomar Piguet. We've done projects uh, with the Metropolitan Museum of Art, academic lectures and talks. Um, we worked, we did a really cool project not so long ago with uh, the curator of contemporary, uh, the curator of, uh, at MoMA, excuse me, uh, Paola Antonella, who's a brilliant, brilliant curator. We did a fun exhibition along, it was Otomar Piguet, Paola, and Take Two, the creators of uh, the Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption oh, series, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on time theory and video games. And it was, it was, at E3 a couple years back. So we had all the major icons of the competing brands there in one place of the of all the different video game companies. We did it at the Chateau Mormont, which is a scene in Grand Theft Auto. Mm -hmm. So we actually streamed the footage of the video game in the location of where we were. Oh, wow. So it was okay. super so meta cool. and fun. Right. And we looked at different video games that explore time and time theory in different ways and had a great discussion with some of the phenomenal developers and creators. Um, those types of engagements all really bring a different, different people in and different perspectives. And it goes back to those cultural exchanges, which are so significant for, for, for Audemars Piguet. I mean, it's so significant. Another one along those lines that's important to mention is is our work, of course, Art Basel is well documented, but the Montreux Jazz Festival, which, which we recently have taken over uh, a sponsorship with. But for many, many years, we had been preserving the archives for Montreux. We've been, we've been participating in the financing of that, never publicly, never allowed. That's an interesting thing with Audemars Piguet, which surprised me. Some of our communications are very loud. We beat the drum and the world knows then we have this whole other scope of activity, which is very quiet and discreet. Not just products, but but campaigns as well, nonprofit act activities. Um, that's again back to the characters of being a family-run business, the personal interests of Olivier and of Jasmine, of the members of the board, and their interest in taking that interest to the point of making real contributions. So it made sense for a company producing watches to preserve footage of Montreux. By the way, the Montreux Festival, when you look at the history of performances and who has been captured there, not just this year, but over the last 25, 30 years, it's just amazing, you know, just yeah, to it's see. It's a very important uh, European festival yeah. uh, of music. All the big the names, yeah. you'll find it, yeah. yeah. One part of your job is also to connect with collectors, and um, so we have a couple of um, More collector-focused questions. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we have to edit some of our cultural... Yeah. 
conversation oh, down no, a little no, bit. No, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna leave that <laughs> yeah. in. It's very interesting to yeah. see how AP is involved yeah. in other aspects. So I mean, whether we like it or not, a lot of people will tend to think of watches as an investment piece, and I think even us as editors, a lot of people come to us and say, I'm buying my first watch, what would be a good piece to invest in? And it's not enough for us to tell them just to buy whatever you like. Mm -hmm. They need to know if there's a value in it. Um, what, what what will you tell them? Like, is, is there a right or a wrong way of thinking, thinking this way? Well, the first question is, there's a big distinction between if we're looking at newly created, currently available produced watches, or if we're looking at vintage or discontinued watches. So that becomes the first question because the answer is gonna be different, right? The answer is gonna be very, very different. So so for vintage watches, let's start there. It's a little easier, a little less loaded of a question and the answers are very objective. Um, so first you need to extract the objective from the subjective criteria like you do in any analysis. What's real and what's, uh, what's imagined and what's, what's real or what's possible. With vintage watch collecting, there's enough history and enough data that it's clear. When you buy a watch that's in impeccable condition or beautifully aged, it has a much greater chance of holding or increasing in value. We know this now. We didn't know this 25 years ago, 20 years ago. The difference between a refinished dial Daytona and an original Daytona was not so big of a difference. Now the difference could literally be hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that's a very, very, very key element. The other key element about long-term values is will the watch continue to align with current collecting trends? Now I'm talking about size and shapes. So some great vintage watches by brands like Audemars, Patek, and Vacheron are at 20-year lows right now. Anybody who tells you the whole vintage watch world has gone up is simply wrong. They're not looking at the data. 20 years ago, the rectangular watches from the 50s were huge, huge. The APs, the Patek 2441s, 2442s, 1593s, they were so hot and collectible. The baby boomers were all over them. This is what's referred to in culture as the 30-year cycle. We have a tendency to romance our childhoods, and we tend to do that when we hit our 30s, when we have a little bit more time and money to do so. Look at our obsession with 1980s culture today. This is the 30-year cycle. Stranger Things is the 30-year cycle, for example. It's a, it's a little window. The same thing was true in the 80s and 90s, looking back at the aesthetics of the 50s. Those guys loved those styles, loved those designs, not just in watches, cars too, by the way. And the prices went up because you had more people participating. There are watches, rectangular great watches from great brands that were bringing 80, 90,000 and 2,000 that today are bringing... 20, 25,000. So that's a, that's a key point. Even with, within complications, smaller size watches. So, you know, if you think about the early perpetuals, the, the very first generations, Patek reference 1526 made in 1941. It's a beautiful watch. It's a very collectible watch still, but it doesn't have the, the, the fever of activity that it did 15 years ago, the number of bidders and the number of participants. So that's another point. Will the aesthetics of the watch cut through the timeline? Now that's the key question. Cut through the timeline. That's, a, that's an idea where we're starting to move into the subjective now. We don't know. We can only predict based on the analysis of what's happened and the projections of where we're heading. So if we're going to look at today, for example, two of the most collectible watches clearly is the Royal Oak and the Nautilus. But 
is it a question of the 30-year cycle? My generation old enough now to go bidding crazy and recapturing our youth and our childhood and the aesthetics of our childhood? Or are those objects going to cut through the timeline and remain relevant for much, much longer? Some objects will, some won't. This is true with any works, any works of art. If you look, let's just jump to music for a second. Take, I don't know, the Beatles' Sgt. Peppers or the Velvet Underground Nico or the Rolling Stones, just these records, what makes these albums continue to be listened to, remixed, revisited, where if you look at the top 20 albums of the years that those come out, 17 of those are forgotten or barely referred to. What contributes to that cutting through the timeline? Why does, why does the Met Opera put on Werther, a 200-year-old opera that's from a book that's even older? Why does that... Why, why that opera? Why did that cut through the timeline and remain fresh and relevant? Sometimes there's a good reason. With Werther, it ended up influencing uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which ended up becoming a massive pop cultural uh, reference point. It still is today. Sometimes you see it, sometimes you're unsure why. So back to the question of collectability with watches. When you're looking at vintage, and we're going to jump to contemporary in a sense, it needs to be great condition, it needs to align with current collecting trends, and what is the potential of it cutting through the timeline? That question, the next question is, wh are, are you getting in at a good time? Are you getting in at a good time, right? If, is it a good, and this is true with any investment, by the way, is it a good time to buy Google stock right now? I don't know. It's probably, Google's a huge brand. It's, a, it's everywhere. It's the future of artificial intelligence. Like, you know, it's, it's there, but it's a lot per share. So for us normal human beings, for us to buy 10 shares of Google is like a big investment. That's a big chunk of a, of a normal person's salary. Is it the right thing to do or not? I don't know. That's not my world. But there are other companies that are emerging where you have a sense, okay, this is on the ground floor. This is something that has the potential. So where you're buying in is also very, very significant. I encourage people to look for gaps in the market, market gaps. Why is this model doing super well where this model is a little softer? Is there the potential for that model to be discovered? Let's jump to Omega for a second, okay? Another super popular collecting brand. Speedmasters are all over the place in terms of their the passion and the love, rightfully so. It's very cool watch, amazing watch with amazing history. But what about all those Omega chronostops and dynamics that I bought in my youth? They've gone up a little bit. These are really, really cool watches that cost almost nothing, great movements, beautiful dials, but they're worth a fraction of what the Speedmasters are. Am I telling people to go buy chronostops and dynamics? No. But what I'm telling people is there's clearly one product within Omega's vintage catalog has gone way up and others are pretty soft. So if somebody is, has a few hundred dollars to spend and they're, they're, they can't afford that Speedmaster, well, you know what? Maybe there's a really cool chronostop, which is a predecessor of the Speedmaster, a really cool design in its own right that you can acquire and wear and enjoy. So there's those market gaps too. That's on the vintage side. Condition, ability to cut through the timeline, does it align with current collecting trends? What's the scope of collectors going to be in the short term and the long time? The long term. Some of that criteria applies to modern watch collecting as well. Some of those questions remain the same. This is where you have to look at, we have to jump back to your economics 101 and look at the old equation of supply and demand. I know I sound like an old man, but it really is essential. It's absolutely essential, this notion of supply and demand. 
we know this very well at Audemars Piguet. We see what watches have appreciated massively in value and what's a total buyer's market because we produce too many. It's very evident and it's very clear. And let me be clear. Our decisions moving forward are very much connected to the lessons of the past, right? So if I'm if, if the team is introducing a new complication, something that I'm not going to want to overproduce, sometimes it's through limitations. Our open-worked watches, the very sought-after 15407, we don't choose to make few. We're at capacity. When you're doing work by hand, open-working, beveled edges, hand-finishing, it's a limitation. It's not a choice. Some rare watches in the world are a choice, and that's fine. You can make a choice. Others as a matter of limitations. For grand complications, which you guys know, for us, the grand comp is minute repeater, perpetual, split second, all in one. The current caliber is 648 components. The individual watchmaker produces from beginning to end. We only have a handful of watchmakers only able to make one to two a year. I have orders for years. I can't increase until I, until more watchmakers are able to produce grand complications. And we're never going to want to increase too much, right? We're never going to want to go too much. So this relationship of supply and demand is significant when you're looking at contemporary watches. It's, it's fun acquiring something that's, that's so-called on trend or of the moment. But it's also, what's really fun is finding something before that moment hits, that's the real cool part, right? It's no different from, uh, you know, you get in on a stock before it moves you. That's kind of fun and exciting. But people have to remember that it becomes a different exercise in practice. So you as a buyer have to choose. Do you want this to be passion and love and heart? Or do you, this, do you want this to be an intellectual exercise that you're going to have constant buyer's remorse, seller's remorse, uh, remorse for not making the decision in the first place? I chose not to go in that direction. I, I, I buy what, I, what you said earlier. I just buy what I love, what I enjoy, what I feel represents me in that moment in my life, which is why I can't sell. Because my watch, I've sold a couple pieces over the years, but usually because of a you know, bad vibe or you know, whatever. But normally, those watches become a diary of my life. So I, I, it's funny. I just opened up one of the boxes from my 20s, teens and late teens and 20s. That's why I was, had the Omega Dynamics and Chronostops in my mind because I couldn't believe I, some of those that I'd had. I'd forgotten about some of those watches. But I also saw in that box a massive, huge, oversized, Illinois, rectangular, 14-carat, hand-engraved, original dial. I must have been 19 when I bought that watch. That's a rare watch, and that's collectible. Thing is massive. I I can think of dealers off the top of my head who would just love that watch. I'm not. I wouldn't sell it, right? I wouldn't sell it. I didn't buy that watch for the two hundred dollars back in the day, thinking it would be worth uh, uh, twelve thousand today. That wasn't the intention at all. Um, that's the result today. So it just simply occurred. It just simply re- resulted in that way. There is another one in my collection long before I joined Audemars Piguet, um, like a lot of people in the early days of eBay, there were some great, Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah you remember, man. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, the, the things I was always scared of eBay, I've never bought, but I've, I've, I, I know the, the stories and I know that there oh, were yeah. some great deals too. Oh, and to y- listen, I, 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 I was burned a couple times. There were a couple treasures. I, I on eBay acquired an Audemars Piguet ring watch. Oh, so wow. tiny five line caliber inside of a ring 
And I came to discover later when I joined Audemars Piguet that it was one of the unique ring watches made in super small series in the 1950s, all original. And I paid nothing for this object. I mean, really, it was something that I don't know if people didn't know if there was a movement inside. It was that inexpensive. Mm. Maybe the person thought it was just a prop who was selling it. This was when it wasn't just watch dealers selling. It was finders and pickers who were just had their own eBay pages and were just posting what they found in their local. uh, It was a really cool transitional time because it was like you had the ability to go to every garage sale in the world Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. and it was before it got really institutionalized and now you have all these layers in between um but that was that was an exciting one for sure that was did did you put it in the museum you know i haven't we we i'd loan it to the museum for an exhibition but no that's uh that one's staying that's staying in the family (laughs) that one's staying in my family not the gotta keep some for yourself i will share it share it with the otomarty gay family but it's the friedman family (laughs) yeah um, I think maybe we'll just do one more question because um, so so like you said earlier about supply and demand, um, I think today a lot of collectors like one thing that collectors struggle with is being on a waiting list and not being able to get to a timepiece when they want to. Um, what are or your even thoughts if they, even if they right. want <laughs> to yeah so what are your thoughts on this and um, like does AP have this problem as well where collectors are quite not? I guess like angry or disappointed or that they a bit annoyed maybe a little annoyed yeah listen this without a doubt without a doubt this is this is tough i mean and it's a real real uh, subject that that has to be that has to be looked at but also needs to be fully understood so just to make it clear i have clients who have ordered or acquired grand complications several hundred thousand they too sometimes have to wait a while for the 15202. They might be told no on year one on a black ceramic. Like even at the highest level, the demand, when I say highest level, I'm talking about of spend, not of friendship or connection to the brand. Okay. Like let's be clear. Every client existing or potential of Audemars Piguet is significant to us, majorly significant to us. It's why we spend so much time with young collectors, emerging collectors. So first and foremost, we're a private company. We're not publicly traded. We won't be. We are in purely independent. So relationships is what drives our brand. This is just, let me be absolutely clear. We're not chasing the dollars in that sense. But having said that, business is business, and the reality is the reality, as you described. So yes, it's very tough. We have great existing clients as well as phenomenal potential clients who really specifically want say the 15202 because the 41 millimeters too big you guys stopped making 39s that's the only watch i want not because it's trendy not because it's overvalued but because it fits me and i love it simple so yeah we understand that that can be tough and that could be that could be frustrating for people outside of somebody though who is specific to a certain size that's that is a tough issue. And if somebody has to wait, what I tell them is, look, we have a long history of making 39 millimeter Royal Oaks. And there's a big jump. There's a big gap. We're back to market gaps, right? Here's a good, going back to your earlier question. Yes, the new 15202 is extremely hard to get and, and, and trades for well over retail, which means we have to be super cautious who we sell to. We don't want to feed a flipper community. We want to, we want to satisfy end clients who love the watches. And then you have the A-series first-generation Royal Oaks, which are worth a fortune now. They've gone up significantly in value. But what I tell people is there's a lot. There's 40 years in between between Mm -hmm. with some great, great watches that can be acquired that are going to go up, no doubt. You know, 
a B series box and papers versus an A series, I'll tell the serious collector, buy the B series box and papers, let alone somebody just starting or a C or a D or a 39 millimeter perpetual calendar, which is, which, okay, they're starting to move a lot. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I might've made that comment a few too many times over the last few years, but, uh, but those are starting to go up. But my point is, is that when you breathe, there's other opportunity, there's other chances, you know, that's, and then on the new watches, what I always tell people is look, I can tell you, I'm deep in the plans, along with several others, through for many years into the future. Look at this year alone at Audemars Piguet. Just this year, we had the uh, we had, of course, the black ceramic extra thin tourbillon. We had the white ceramic perpetual calendar. We have the Code Eleven Fifty Nine perpetual calendar, and now we have the RD Two, the thin perpetual calendar. These four watches are the demand is completely greater than the supply i mean and it's not just the royal oaks okay like that code perpetual it's i am upsetting a lot of people by not being able to deliver those watches right now but in that year there's four so i have client who wants two wants three they're only able to get one or none what i tell them is look do you think this is it like next year there's always going to be something more other industries have figured this out before the watch industry. If you go to look at a car, for example, and again, they're totally different. I understand. It's they're making a metaphorical comparison. But when it's the middle of the year, you're not thinking about the 2019 car anymore. You're starting to imagine what the 2020 version is. That's a lesson the watch world needs to breathe and meditate on a little bit. Because a brand like Audemars Piguet will have great, cool, interesting, fascinating things in 2020 and in 2021 and onward and onward. So internally, what we, what, we, what we train, what we teach staff, the way to discuss this with potential collectors, if they can't get something, hey, do you want to be among the first to know with what's going to come out next? We're not pre-selling. We're just creating the anticipation, gathering that information so we can share that. And we will sell to new clients. We always do. We just don't sell to existing clients. This is very frustrating for the existing clients. They feel right. It's a, they have a good point. They feel they should have access to everything. I'm a good client. I should get everything. But when we sit down and explain to them, right, but don't you want us to expand? Don't you, you as a lover of the brand, want other people to be able to appreciate those hand-finished cases, those beautiful watches, those interesting aesthetics, they start to sort of get it and understand that. So we always need to be balancing a few for new as well as satisfying existing. But what I tell people is you can look to the past and you can look to the future if you're not finding something that you want right now, if you're not finding something you want right now. And the, and the other thing I'll sometimes challenge is, is are you sure you like what what's your goal of of that watch what's the purpose it's do you want it because you're told you have to have it you know like because sit on that for a second you know when have you been subject to peer pressure since you were 12 like you know we as adults should not be subject to peer pressure like we need to relax a little bit instagram ig culture it's great in many ways but it's also it's also created some strange psychological dy dynamics of what people think they need or what people think they want. And we end up in, in patterns of, of behavior that, that we might not have engaged in uh, otherwise. And we sometimes think we want something and yeah, maybe we want it, but there's a big difference between that and being really pissed off or upset that you're you're unable to acquire it. But we're aware of it. It's it's it can be a Royal Oak, it can be a Nautilus, it could be a Daytona. 
it's annoying to wait. It's annoying to be told no. You have your hard-earned money. You want to spend it. You want to have that object. We get it. I totally get it. At least with AP, I can direct people to say, if you can't get it now, there's great watches from the recent and distant past, which you can acquire. There's great contacts out there. And if you're patient, we'll have something for you in the future. All right. Well, yeah. on those words, uh, th uh, yeah. we want to thank you very much for your time and for all your knowledge. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Talking it was to great you. to see both of you. I look yeah. forward to catching up again yes. next time in HK. Yeah, yeah for thank sure. Thank you so much. All right. Thank all you right. very much. Thank you. Right. Take care. All right. And we're back. Uh, so that was our conversation with Michael Freeman, uh, head of complications at Audemars Piguet. Yes. And thank you so much to Michael for um, giving us so much of his time uh, and yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. And so now let's move on to the interesting stories that we have on the website currently. Last week, we spoke to, um, well, we didn't, sorry. Yeah, well, yeah we didn't, we, our founder Waco did. Yeah, last week, Waco spoke to John Goldberger, or his real name, Oro Montanari. Mr. Montanari has an amazing collection of vintage Cartier tank watches, um, and which he showed us uh on the video, I think a lot of people who've already seen it loved it. So if you haven't, you should go and check it out. And we also did a second video with Mr. Montanari, um, this time on a Patek Philippe perpetual calendar, reference 3449. It is the rarest perpetual calendar ever made because there are only three examples. So that is also a worthy video of checking out. Um, and also, if you've noticed on our uh, website, revolution.watch, we have a lot of content on um, the moon landing and the Omega Speedmaster because it's the 50, 50th anniversary. Um, Kevin and I personally, we also had a chance to uh, hear one of the NASA engineers, um, James Reagan, speak at an event in Hong Kong. And um, he told us so many interesting stories. So that is one of the stories that you can find online. Yes, James Reagan, uh, for those who don't know, is the one who came up with the test um, to certify watches to go into space and so he tells the story of which watches uh, failed from the get-go and the story of how the speedmaster uh, became certified as the moon watch to go into space and later um, uh, into the surface of the moon and yeah i think uh, that that's going to be it for this week's episode um, i hope you guys enjoyed it uh, make sure to tune in for the next one and in the meantime go check out our social media platform and leave a, give us uh, some comments and leave us a like whenever you, wherever you can. All right. See you guys next time. 